It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. And welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. This is a very special podcast for me because my star guest this week is my brother, Tom Gardner. Tom will be joining me shortly to share a little bit of maybe early Motley Fool history, but mainly to think present going forward on your behalf. Five tips for entrepreneurs. And my brother Tom is somebody who has read and thought and lived very deeply the life of an entrepreneur, and I am very excited uh, to, to share him with you this special Rule Breaker Investing podcast. Since I'm actually taping this intro after having done the interview, I can tell you it's well worth it. I'm really, I think this will be one of one of the favorite podcasts that listeners look back on when we think about the insights gleaned uh, from this week. And I should mention, this is an election-free podcast. So, there are two reasons for that. Number one, we happen to be taping on Election Day itself. We don't really know the results, so I don't have anything to share for you. You are much the wiser now for knowing what has happened. In the meantime, we didn't know when Tom and I had this conversation. There's a second reason, too, which is that we're really not that focused on the election or politics in general on this podcast. I think you already know that, having listened to recent podcasts. We take it seriously. It does matter. It's just not our focus. My brother Tom, myself, so many Motley Fool employees, really so many Motley Fool members nationwide and worldwide are focused on a better tomorrow, and at least for me anyway, it comes largely through the acts of entrepreneurs and investors investing in them. That's my focus. Before sharing Tom with you, I'd like to thank a couple of listeners, Ken Hart and Dave Bernstein. Both of you have asked us to have Tom on this podcast. Ken, you've done so over the months saying, Dave, have Tom on and talk about early family background history and those kinds of things, that's very flattering. That's not my focus this week, so you won't hear about how Tom and I grew up as kids. Maybe I'll do that at some self-indulgent point some months or years hence. But the focus this month, as we all know, is it's Entrepreneur Month at Rule Breaker Investing. Anyway, thank you, Ken, and thank you, Dave, for your, your interest. And now, let me welcome to the studio one of my favorite entrepreneurs, and that's my brother, Tom Gardner. Tom? Welcome to Rule Breaker Investing. Coincidentally, you happen to be one of my favorite entrepreneurs too. I appreciate that. Now we don't want to have too much of you know. Pat we'll the other guys. Bat. Oh no, we'll argue. Okay, okay. But the truth is, this is really a special opportunity for us to talk some about the company that we started together and to get your viewpoint. That's people hear enough from me every week. In fact, I think people hear too much from me every week. So your point of view in terms of what works for entrepreneurs—that's the focus, as you know, of Entrepreneur Month here on Rule Breaker Investing. Uh, so Tom, let me just start by asking you. Questions I've really never asked you before. You ready for the first one? I'm ready. Let's do it. At what age did you first learn of entrepreneurship? The age of 16. If I can, I mean, maybe it happened earlier in some way, but the first real um, connection I had with entrepreneurship was starting a summer camp with my high school football coach, who had also been the director of the camp that we went to at an all-boys camp in Maine and his kids, Jake Congleton. You might as well call it a Camp Timonis in Raymond, Maine. In Raymond, Maine on Panther Pond. There were some good years there for us, um, playing a lot of baseball. and Instructional swim in the morning was tough, cold Maine water. <laughs> but um, Jake then went and started a co-educational camp. And when he did that, I was a 16-year-old. He was the football coach of the high school that I went in Groton, Massachusetts. And we started the camp together, which meant we wrote the camp prayer. We 
designed what activities. We named the cabins. That's awesome. We, we and you know when I say that, Dave, that that's a great example. And then if I were to go back earlier, it would be you know we're ten years old, 11, 12, 9, 11, and we have the Stratomatic Baseball League in our house with like twenty plus other little guys coming over on the weekend and playing the baseball league out. And you were the American League commissioner. I was the National League commissioner, and we had to pull together rules on how you could make trades. So it was essentially limited time doing something that you loved, making decisions that had some consequence, may not seem consequential now, but 10-year-old who's told he can't trade Pete Rose for a dollar is very frustrated, but we're shooting him down because that's not really the spirit of the (laughs) Stratomatic Baseball League. (laughs) So, um, from Stratomatic Baseball, which I've definitely mentioned before, on this podcast, let's fast forward back to back to summer camp. So you kind of with with a mentor, uh, a gentleman who was a teacher and a coach for you, you you guys kind of created a new camp, and that was your first experience. Did you know what the word? Did you use the word entrepreneur? Did you know that word when you were sixteen? I I knew the word, but I I it wasn't a living concept for me. And maybe the first time that I really thought through that word was when I taught a class at Georgetown University in 2000 and we decided, it was a class on entrepreneurship, and we decided we will write a book together in eight weeks. And I remember looking up entrepreneur. Now, if I had thought about it, I would have looked it up again before, but I know its origin is French, and it has something to do with learning how to manage limited resources. And so, limited time, limited capital, uh, limited access to talent, uh, so such an important, such an important point, which is that it is through that that limitation of not having enough capital, never having enough capital or time or whatever, that you're forced to make the best calls you can and start something. And it's a challenge to do it with other people and many other people, and to gather alignment around the idea of doing more with less is a very good mentality. Even if we have a lot of resources, even at Microsoft or at Amazon or at Facebook or Google, it's important that everyone share the concept of we need to do more with less. We need to create more value than the input of our time, creative energy, and capital. So, and I know Jeff Bezos has a number of great quotes on that. I mean, basically, constraint is what drives innovation. Mm. Did your class write that book? We wrote the book. We got an incredible uh, book uh, advance. We got a $300,000 advance to publish a book wow. on, on compound interest. And we, we had, it was, the title of the book was Einstein's Miracle. Mm-hmm. Um, and everyone knows that Einstein probably did not say they compound. Uh, the eighth wonder of the, the world. The eighth wonder of the world. Probably the, not. The greatest miracle he saw in his yeah. life on Earth. But it's still, it's a beautiful concept. Sure. And if he didn't say it, he probably would have loved to have said it. And so we had all that, and then the market utterly collapsed in 2001, and our publisher came back and asked us if they could not have that deal on the books, because there weren't people buying business books, and we agreed. And so I still have the text of that book, which is, maybe it's about 85 pages, and we did it. It was fascinating. It was great. We had a great time. We had 55 students. We had 11 students who were writers, 11 students who were editors, 11 students who were researchers, 11 students who were putting together the marketing plan, 11 students who were project managers mm. to, to work the whole thing. And uh, yeah, it was entrepreneurship at its best. It didn't get the end result we dreamed of. So let me pull apart. There's two threads here going on both the summer camp experience and that experience. There's the energy and collaboration toward a goal aspect of being an entrepreneur. That's one conversation. The second is the money of it. Who owns it and what happens financially. And obviously they're ultimately merged 
in for-profit entrepreneurship. Um, but the experience, I'm assuming, going back to summer camp, you, you were not a, an owner of that. You were not, in a sense, a financial partner, were I, you? I was not an owner, but you know, it's interesting you say that, because I don't think that the partnership held together on that camp. Now, I don't really know the full story, and if either the Pat Coglin, the owner, or Jake Congleton, the camp director, you know, if you wanted to get them on the record, um, but I, I have a feeling that partnership fell apart, and you know that that links me to a book that I know David, we're both familiar with, the Partnership Charter, uh, written by David Gage, and it's a it's a wonderful you know 200 page book that lays out the principles of a great partnership. Because for example, if you start a business with a partner and one of the partners wants to just Get something going and sell it in two years, right. and the other one wants to spend the rest of their life doing it. There's going to be conflict if one of them wants to uh, have a whole variety of different products, and one of them just wants to focus in one niche and dominate it for the next ten years. You're going to have conflict. It's natural to have that conflict, and most people, when they start something up, they don't take the time to organize a charter of agreements that could be very light. It could be a one-page document, but they don't get the basic agreements in place to ensure that the outcomes that they both want are going to be achieved. Okay, so really valuable to have those conversations. If you do have a partner or a partnership, and which may or may not have been the case for a summer camp 30 years ago, but I, I get I get your point. So, you again, we have the kind of the financial arrangements and the financial goals, and then just the, the beauty of creating something with other people and the energy of that. Whether or not the book gets published, um, just the effort. I mean, I, I imagine that was quite a remarkable experience to be in that class if you're a Georgetown University student and driving toward actually having a finished product by the end of the class. It was exciting for all of us, and I have a feeling it's still exciting to a number of people. And I really, I need to commit. We need to make public commitments in our life to really take the actions that you know we believe uh, we should. You know, that can make the world a better place. And I think the world would be better with that book. And I need to get back in touch with those Georgetown students and get that manuscript and see if there's some way to self publish it. An awesome. ebook. I had no idea that this podcast would be such a catalyst this week for my interviewee and my brother. I, I, I was hoping that this podcast will be a catalyst for entrepreneurs and small business people everywhere listening for your wisdom. And coming up, you're going to give us five tips for entrepreneurs. Maybe you've already foreshadowed one or two of them. But Tom, if this all causes that book to be published now, that would be the ninth wonder of the modern world. I expected this podcast experience to change my life in at least three ways. <laughs> We've done so once. <laughs> okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about The Motley Fool, a company that you started with a brother and a best friend from college. Um, share with rule breakers everywhere why The Motley Fool was started and what the goal was, and whether now, 23 years later, you think that that's being fulfilled or things have changed. Give us a little bit of Motley Fool early days. I think the first reason that it was started is that um, you and I and our friend Eric Rideholm really enjoyed learning about investing together. Now, you were running ahead of us, and so we were learning from you. But of course, when you teach someone, you learn yourself. And so I think we were just enjoying spending time. Uh, in a subject that seemed to open a whole world of opportunity to obviously make money, but also take some risk, um, you know, have something that mattered that you could check, um, you know, every day or every week or every month, you know, the valuation of the investment you'd made, and to learn about the world, to see cool new technologies. I don't even remember what applied innovation. What was their business? Do you remember? That was an early stock pick of ours, way, way back in the yeah. day. I literally don't remember I can't either. Remember. The name doesn't really help us. Let me does just it? say, if you're a graduate student in linguistics at the University of Montana, <laughs> as I was, uh, and and really enjoyed that uh, uh, work, um, 
just that you would be invested in something called applied innovation was going to open a different world for you, technology and all this other stuff. So that, that I think that was the core reason is we really loved learning about it together. And we started as a newsletter, right? And that's the it second factor July is that we all loved writing. We we all enjoy writing. We probably all felt at some point we're going to write a novel. I think each of us had maybe that dream somewhere. And this was an opportunity for us. Yes, in July of 1993, we sent all of our articles in, and you were there in Alexandria, here in Alexandria, Virginia, and you laid it all out in Microsoft Publisher, and you printed it all up. I mean, you were basically carrying the load of the uh, the heavy work of publishing and distributing. And Eric and I were just sending our articles in, and and kind of it just took off from there. I love the subject of investing, learning together, and the opportunity to communicate it to the world. And then so, when the internet shows up, it's it's like live radio. It's incredibly fun. You're getting reactions in real time when you post things, and you start to become a lot more interested in that live interaction with investors from Tucson, Arizona to Madrid to you know Raymond, Maine. Um, friends, people you've never met before, all sort of connecting, and every hour you can see what the response is looking like, and that's very different than sending a newsletter out once a month. So I'm hearing you. You guys started a newsletter. Uh, the joke we've always made it was for our parents' friends because they were the only ones who were willing to pay us forty-eight dollars a year for our scribblings at the time. What actually happened to cause a cottage little homegrown family newsletter to become? All of a sudden, an online site and then a for-profit company. Well, our opening introduction in July of 1993 essentially invited our readers, however few there would be, to be our contributors. We had 48, 48 Four, subscribers 48. after that. We mailed, remember, we mailed to a thousand people. Mm-hmm. We had expectations of more than 48. 48, which is a good yield on a direct marketing campaign. It seemed horrendous at the time. Yeah, we had it, it all hurt the people us. that we could think of. We were sending to school lists. We sent to our cousin's wedding list in North Dakota. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, there was it was not like we had a business plan, and you know, we were taking this all seriously. We'd mapped out the financials. But on the other hand, we thought maybe we would be able to do this. Maybe this would turn into something that could pay us some or a full something of a full time salary someday. And when you got forty eight people back paying forty eight dollars a year, you know, you run the numbers on that, you're like, okay, <laughs> cool. So we're we're at about twenty five hundred dollars. Um and uh and so that tested, you know, your resolve to do this, right? Sometimes something number like that pops up, you're like, this is a bad idea. Let's cut it. Instead it's like, hey, we love doing this, let's stick with it. But our opening intro said, We want you, our reader, to be our contributor. Submit articles, please. If you have insights into particular industries or you have some view that's unconventional, certainly like a core theme of yours uh, throughout has been, you know, unconventional wisdom. That's like Flipping things on their head, and in Charlie Munger language, it's whatever it looks like the answer, invert and see if there's some truth in that as well. And that was a lot of the spirit of the Motley Fool. And we started to get contributions from different people, like Tommy Wall. What was the trigger? What was the catalyst? Like, when did this actually take off? Um, It took off when we, when I was back from Missoula, Montana, over a weekend in the spring. That I don't even think at the time. I'm not even sure I was thinking. I don't know if we were talking about the fact that it was April Fool's weekend. I mean, I just think we were pranksters. We were flooding the phone lines of radio stations in the D.C. area with prank calls as kids. And so, when we were out on the internet, we saw, wow, something we really don't believe in here, and we can make fun of it. And it is the promotion of low-grade promotional penny stocks that people were taking advantage of. Wait, people were doing that online back then? It's shocking 
And, and what's really sad is that it still happens today. You know, there are a lot of like investment newsletter publishing businesses that have like penny stock millionaire and red hot penny shares. And, you know, this is this is a purely speculative, but it's also a way to manipulate uh, pump share and dump. prices. It's a lot of pump and dump. It's Wolf of Wall Street. It was going on and we called it to the mat with our uh, fictitious company over April Fool's weekend in 1994. And it just got a little out of control, mostly in a fun way. We're like, oh my gosh, uh, people are falling for it in real time. We're putting on AOL Prodigy. We're telling uh, people to buy a stock that's at that eight didn't cents, actually exist. And it's over a weekend, and we're saying, oh, hey, it was at eight cents an hour ago. It's now at 48 cents. Exciting. And gradually, people are sending us notes like, I can't, I can't find this company. I, I can't find the Halifax Canadian Stock Exchange. Like, what should I do? My broker can't <laughs> find any of this. Exist. And we're like, you should fire your broker. Um, so, <laughs> so it spun out of control. I think there was a death threat that yeah. came to your yeah. home phone line, which that, is when is your, true. my sister-in-law said, "Hey, can we take a different phone line now?" <laughs> but the, but you had, I think you had a friend or somebody that you knew that worked at the Wall Street Journal, and they ended up writing a story on what had happened in that lower left uh, two-column humor story in the second section of the Wall Street Journal that was an everyday thing back then. And that opened a lot of people, and primarily America Online, to saying, hey, we were mentioned in the Wall Street Journal with these guys, and they had just gone public. They were like market cap $100 million company. And they contacted us and asked us if we would go into business. And that is really the superhero origin story for the enterprise that you and I are partnered on and have been for 23 years. It was, it was making a joke of it was foolish. Penny stock pump it's exactly and dump, what should have happened. But we were lampooning it, and we got the attention, as it turns out, of the nation. And all of a sudden, AOL was right here in Northern Virginia, just coincidentally so. And they said, hey, you guys are just paying customers on our site. And look, we just read about you in Forbes, because the story started getting picked up. We had lunch, and, uh, and that's really what kicked it all off. If you start The Motley Fool with a PowerPoint and a whole bunch of many pages of financial projections, there's something very wrong with that. <laughs> and we did not start The Motley Fool that way. And you, again, you may be foreshadowing Tom's five tips for entrepreneurs. And in fact, Tom, I like that I think, we're holding those out to the end. Well, I think we probably should start them. Have you ordered your five tips in any way, shape, or form, chronologically, by import, or just as they come to your head, which is usually how I order things? Let's say emotional consequence. All right, good. So, is the first, should we go five to one and build, or should we go one to five? Mm, great question. I think at this point we've gone far enough in that we need to lead with the biggest and hope that number five is still worthy. Okay, good. I love it. Don't Tom, bury the lead. What is your number one tip for entrepreneurs? It's hard. It's hard. It's it's not going to be easy. I remember talking to Howard Schultz, who was an early investor in The Motley Fool, and saying, gosh, Howard, it must be amazing to wake up in the morning and know that people in countries around the world are waking up with one of the early thoughts in their mind, I want a Starbucks. I'm like, that's just incredible. Your business is just set up every morning to make you feel good. And he looked at me like I was insane. And he said, no, it's harder. It gets, it gets more challenging. We're in more countries, different cultures. You know, we have, uh, you know, food quality is so important. And to scale that across so many, I mean, it's all more, we have more employees, we have more, there's more. And he looked at me and he said, the number one thing you need to realize is that you should only go into business or really into any field professionally if you want to solve harder problems mm. as you go. If that you're hoping they're going to get, if you're hoping they're going to get easier and you're going to finally get that downhill run with wind behind your back as you leap into the river smiling, that's retirement. Um, 
the real joy of doing something important as an entrepreneur is to solve more complicated problems. And that's why I know it is true for you too, David, but certainly somebody that I admire tremendously is Elon Musk, who, after the sale of his early first business, I think that was Zip2, and then after the sale of PayPal, he had $180 million, and he could have put it into bonds and stocks and real estate and diversified it all, bought a plane, bought a yacht. He at least could have subscribed to Motley Full Stock Advisor. You know what? Darn it, Elon. I had a lot more love for you before <laughs> David you know, just observed that. The truth is, maybe that. he has. I will say this: that as you know, true. we got to know him Let's a little bit. Let's just assume that he has, because he came to speak at our offices was in 2011, plan. which yeah. is actually what triggered me. You know what's terrible Tesla. about that? I was out of the office that day. Yeah, and you walked right out of that interview, and you and you recommended Tesla. Well, I made it my next pick for rule breakers. You know what was at amazing like to me about that? Nineteen dollars a share, right? Fourteen um, or nineteen? I can't remember. I think that. it was in the twenties. Actually, you know, but it's great when you're so, when you're doing so well as an investor. You're like, ah, no, God, my cost I, basis. By I no don't means, know. was it one or three? Split any adjusted? investor I, I just can't knows remember. that over the course of time, yeah. if you hold long enough, you'll forget yeah, your cost basis. Find but, the right companies. But what was awesome about that visit, and then back to your important point, is that Musk was saying at Full HQ that day. Um, he, he kind of laid out his vision for Tesla and what it's all about. Um, the Model S wasn't out yet, and it was the third most shorted stock on the Nasdaq, and mm. that's really what I keyed into. Mm. I was like, this guy has such a great pedigree behind him. He's so bright, he's ambitious, and he's so shorted. And those of us who know how shorting works, and I know you do, Tom, but for anybody who's not that familiar with shorting, you know, when a lot of people are betting against you, that means they've already sold your stock, and to close out of that transaction, they're going to end up needing to buy back the shares. That's pain. how shorting works. And so, uh, yeah, yeah. So anyway, pain. but yeah. Tom, back to your point, it's hard. So if I'm an entrepreneur, I hear you say that. Is there a way for me? Are you simply expressing as your number one emotional impact point? empathy with me, or are you trying to nudge me in some direction with that? Is there a tip there, or is it just like, hey man, dude? It's an empathetic push. It's an empathetic push. It's it's hard, I feel, for what you're going to go through. It's There's been a lot of hard, uh, challenging you know, problems that we had to solve, and puddles, puzzles that we needed to put together, uh, David and me, and over 23 years, and we still have fun, big, hard challenges, and it can be painful. I mean, Elon Musk, since we're talking about him, his great quote, uh, uh, starting and running a business is like eating glass while staring into the abyss of death. <laughs> and he, I mean, he, is, he said that? That is a beautiful quote by him. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, there, and, and again, to just a final point on Musk, and then tip number one is done. He had made $180 million when he went home, reflected, and returned, I believe, to a high school essay or notes that he had taken in a journal and reflected on the three ways that he wanted to change the world. Namely, he wanted to get to Mars to help humanity expand and perhaps survive. Um, he wanted electric cars and he wanted solar energy. And those were three passions that he had as Boom. a high schooler. And so what did he do? He didn't put his 180 million in bond stocks and diversify and make sure to protect it. He calculated how much he could afford to lose and bet it on those three changes. And, and began eating glass. Again, even though he didn't have to. And now, beautifully, he's created Solar City, Tesla, SpaceX, and his net worth is around ten billion or eleven billion from where he was at 180 million. So it's isn't it beautiful that sometimes when you make that right bold decision, you are also handsomely that is rewarded awesome. for it. It's hard, but it's gonna be worth it. It's gonna be the greatest learning experience of your life, even if the business you start goes under, which none of us want to see happen, but it happens out there and um, in 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 the best of professional cultures and environments in the world, there's no great shame in that as long as you went down honorably. 
Awesome. Before we get to point number two, I'm just going to forward promote a little bit. We're going to have David Allen of Getting Things Done fame a little bit later this month. And one of David's lines that always comes back to me is a riff on exactly what you've just said. He, he'll say, the better you get, the better you'd better get. Beautiful. And that's, that's, that's the same wonderful point. Tom Gardner, tip number two. Tip number two, it's the tension between how far you can actually see forward So, how far can you plan for it before it becomes absurd? That idea came to me and to us from a friend of ours, Nora Ephron, um, who wrote uh, Sleepless in Seattle and When Harry Met Sally. And um, we got to have dinner with her. That's one one of the great joys of The Motley Fool is the number of people we've gotten to meet in different fields. And I mean, it's just been an amazing experience for us. And Nora um, gave the commencement address at her alma mater, which I believe is Wellesley. And she shared that her family had a practice where anytime they had to wait, like if it's like 30 minutes till your dinner table, you know, you, you got to wait 30 minutes sitting there, her parents would bring out envelopes and they would have to write down a prediction about what they thought would be happening in their life 10 years from now. And then they'd put those in envelopes and set the envelopes aside with dates on them and not touch them until 10 years later. And of course, 10 years have gone by. You have no recollection of what you wrote. And what Nora said in her Wellesley commencement address is essentially every single prediction was wrong. So, 10 years is a very long period of time to look out. You you probably can't do that, but you need to have, let's say, a one-year and three-year plan that everyone who's working with you can look at. And that plan needs to include, this is our purpose. This is why we exist. This is the unique reason that we exist. Don't make it sound very generic. You need, it needs to be distinct. You need to have core values, and then you need to have an objective. One year out, we want to achieve this two years out or three months out, we have our clear objective and everyone knows that that's what we're working toward. That's what winning means for our organization. So, getting that document in the hands of everyone you work with, I think, is a great tool for focus and alignment. Nora Ephron died in 2012 of leukemia. One thing I know you read at the time, I did too, I haven't revisited it, but if anybody has not read her, What I Won't and Will Miss, which was kind of her last article. She probably intended it, obviously, to be published posthumously. It's a it's a wonderful and fun uh, reflection on, on life. Okay. Um, Tom, tip number three. Well, since we're speaking to entrepreneurs, um, you are your organization's greatest asset and greatest obstacle to success. Hmm. And the reason I emphasize that is that if, as an entrepreneur, you're not on a journey to self-awareness, to recognizing, hmm, I never show up to meetings on time. Maybe I shouldn't be the person running meetings. Or... I don't really have a lot of creative ideas, which is unusual for entrepreneurs, but there are entrepreneurs that are incredible operators and they just need people around them to generate the ideas. So, I think anyone can be an entrepreneur, but the odds of your success of your organization rely increasingly on your ability to see your narrowly unique value to the organization. Because as you expand and scale, David and I uh, I've talked about this in the past. It's a David uh, principle, David G principle, as well as a John Mackey, a Whole Foods CEO, is on our board. Uh, what do you love to do? What does your company need you to do? And what can no one else do? And if you find those things, and that's difficult, you may love it, you may be great at it, your company may need it, but somebody may do it as well as you, and you need to hand it to them and move on to the next thing. So that requires a lot of self awareness and a willingness to sacrifice sometimes the things that you love in order to give opportunities to others and move yourself to scale your business. So you are your organization's greatest asset because you have the passion to have created it and you understand the DNA of that organization. But you're also the greatest obstacle because you may feel like you have to prove to people you're capable of doing everything and that's just not possible. Mm, It makes so much sense. Tom, if I'm um, just my own 
man or woman as an entrepreneur. I don't have a company. I don't have somebody to help me towards self-awareness. So a sole proprietor. Out well, here. Yeah, if I'm a sole proprietor, how do I figure out what I'm missing? There's a great Drucker essay that I've never been able to find since reading it about 15 years ago. Are you sure he ago. wrote it? I'm not sure. I may have written it. Uh, but I'm pretty sure I didn't, and it did change my life. So, um, second time my life has been changed on this podcast, nice. this very memory. And Drucker basically said, write down three things you love to do, and three things you're good at, and three things you hate to do, and three things you fail at. Look at that list. Take the things you love to do and are good at, and spend all of your time, as much as you can there, and pay or barter with other people to do the things that you don't enjoy doing and aren't good at. So if you're a sole proprietor out there, I think what you want to do is you want to see your strengths and your capabilities mm -hmm. and then you want to find a way to either use some capital you have or barter with somebody. Why not? Like, hey, listen, if you would do me a favor and manage all my email database, because that's just not, then I will help you with your whole marketing plan. Mm -hmm. I mean, those things don't naturally wrap up, let's say, with your circle of friends, depending on who you're hanging with. But if you joined a local group of entrepreneurs or you found ways to connect through a university with other people that were starting businesses, I think that you, you, you really want to anchor on your full capabilities and put them at use and get other people to help you where you're Such not Such a good point. And, you know, even software these days might be that for you. I mean, I think for a lot of people who start their own business, maybe the accounting is not what they're great at or not what they're interested in, but things like Quicken or, you know, there, there are other ways within the cloud and tools that maybe can help you if you can't afford to hire somebody else to do your accounting for you. Um, you just need to flag it. At some point along the way, you can't afford to do it. You can't find someone to barter. But just the awareness of, you know what? This is really hard for me, and I'm not enjoying as this. As soon as I have some extra money, I am going to yeah, hire somebody to do that's that. That's a motivator. That's for hard you. for a lot of people, isn't it? Especially if you're a sole proprietor, because you're used to kind of doing it all. You're, you're needing to juggle everything. And, and maybe you've even gained some ability to do so. But at a certain point, maybe the thing that you've gotten quite good at is what you need to kind of give away. Tom, you mentioned John Mackey earlier. Yeah, well, I think, uh, you know, John, who, uh, you know, laid out those three principles, what you're good at, what your company needs, and, and, and what uh, no one else can do. What you're good at? What your company needs from you, and what no one else can do in your organization. John um, uh, told me that he was seated in a meeting where they were talking about new locations for the next Whole Foods, you know, two or three uh, stores. And he realized in that meeting that somebody was speaking up in a way that demonstrated they had every bit as much knowledge and insight and possibly some very unique insights that John didn't have. And John said, I walked out of that meeting and even though it was one of my favorite things to do, pick where the next Whole Foods is. Like I love looking at the numbers and strategizing and seeing demographics and what you know, how large should the store be and what's the realtor deal that we're getting for this leasing. Uh, and I just looked at that person and realized, uh, you can do it, mm. you do it and I will now find my next challenge out there. So it's very easy to get anchored in what we love and the company needs from us, and to blind yourself from the fact that there's somebody else there who's every bit as capable that can Su take it over. Such a good point. Thank you, Tom. Number four. And I realize you're probably starting to lose it here. I mean, we may be running out of time, but you know, this isn't as good as your first, second, or third. You might start, do you even believe in point number four before you present it? I believe in point number four, but I also <laughs> can see that it's circumstantial. That's why it's number oh, four. All right, good. So point number four is I believe you should go for premium pricing in the business that you're creating. You should take your unique talent and you should find a great product service solution expression of that talent and insight and you should earn the right to charge above average prices on mm. it. Whether or not you actually charge those prices. 
that's you don't you that's a choice you can make but that you have the ability to charge more than the competition and that you actually demonstrate that you will be able to sustain growth at higher prices than the market um, again you don't have to do it Costco has taken the opposite approach and they're constantly trying to find ways to Drop costs for their customers, and that's great. But they have the ability to raise prices. Yeah, they've so. hit massive scale, which makes that a little bit easier for them to do. That's actually become presumably part of their competitive advantage very, now. Very similar with Vanguard in in our in our category. They get to massive scale and they use it to lower prices, and it's a competitive advantage for them. But I think the key is, and this is a Buffett principle as an investor, that he loves to find companies that have the demonstrated ability to raise prices. They may not always use that opportunity. The classic case is Starbucks, of course. You could take Tesla as another example. Um, you could take Apple as an example. You could take Whole Foods as an example. And sometimes there's price competition. I'm not saying you automatically win, but really looking at what you have to offer the world, if it's not good enough to charge more than the average, it may not be worth building a business around. Mm. Now, what is it, Tom? Why do you? What's underneath that point for you? Like, why is that a good? Tie goes to that strategy answer. Because you've created something that's unique. That's proprietary and that your customer would purchase and enjoy. You've created a unique delight for them versus one of many that they just chose. Just copying and then trying to undercut on price. Yeah, once once it's the battle. The other paper firm. Yeah, and I know that John Mackey just said this about Whole Foods now. He's, he's taken over again as just the sole CEO, and he's like, we're not going to race to the bottom on pricing. And I think that's a smart move for Whole Foods. It does mean you have to earn it, right? Because there may be seven other markets that are getting so close to the experience and the quality of product and all the rest. So, Whole Foods or any business out there needs to demonstrate that you can't just charge, put higher price tags and expect to win. You have to earn those higher prices. And to me, what you're doing in that case is, in Peter Thiel's parlance in his book Zero to One, you're you're creating something new for the world, and that's that's the breakthrough that we all want. Mm. All right, tip number five. Tip number five comes from Slim Basul, the CEO of Middleby, which has been a 115 bagger since he took over in 2000. Um, you know, he's, just, he's a remarkable person. I recommend reading about that company. And, and he, he said this at some point that I really love, which is, um, if it's easy to do and it's right for the customer, that's not a competitive advantage. I mean, you have to do that. You should have been doing that. You should do that. If it's hard to do and it's right for the customer, you should really look at that closely. Now, if it's hard to do and it's right for the customer, but the customer is not willing to pay more for it, okay, that's probably not. But if it's hard to do and it's right for the customer, and the customer will pay up for that, that's a competitive advantage because many businesses are going to look for when the going gets tough or they have short-term pressure from their investors or their public and they have quarterly conference calls, they're looking for shortcuts to make their numbers. And if your business instead can say, "Hey," We're not going to focus on that. We're going to build something that's complex that customers will really want. You know that many other companies are not going to take the time to try and figure out the complexity of that offering. And there are many different aspects of that. You embrace complexity in your culture, how you recruit and develop people and retain people that work there, or how you design product, or how you um, uh, uh, how you structured the capital ownership structure of your business. If it's hard to do, you're going to gain a competitive advantage if it's right for customers and stakeholders. Mm. That's my fifth one. It, in a way, it should be higher up because Salim is, is such an incredible leader. And he's he's probably got a lot better points than that one, but I, I did that did ring true to me. It's like, look at everything you're doing and ask, is there something complex that would be great for customers? And are you, are you working on that? 
Each of those points was remarkable and wonderful. Tom, thank you very much for coming and sharing them. And as we close out here, let me just ask you, I know that you are somebody who's read deeply and thought deeply about entrepreneurship and business, in addition to investing. And you're somebody who's pretty good at coming up with short lists of book recommendations. So, I realize I'm asking you this completely off the cuff, but can you give a couple titles? Let's say I'm somebody who's um, I, I just hired my fifth to tenth employee, and I'm trying. I think I'm starting to make ends meet. I'm getting excited here, but I'm hitting some challenges. A book or books that I could read that would help me at that stage. My first recommendation would be a book entitled "Work Rules" by Laszlo Bach, uh, head of the people team at Google, has built an analytics platform for assessing what leads to productivity, engagement, happiness among um, great tens outcomes, of thousands great teams, of employees. Yeah, across fifty-five thousand employees. But he's written a book that I think provides a lot of useful. Uh, counsel to somebody with 10 employees. So, Work Rules is an excellent book. A second book would be Ricardo Semler's book, um, The Seven-Day Weekend, where Ricardo's built a business with many different business units under that business in Brazil. And the essence of the book title is, Every Day is Saturday. So, the title, again, is The Seven-Day Weekend. Every day is Saturday. What do you want to do today? And he says that to all the employees. And it's like, if you don't want to come to work, then we probably haven't set you up for success, and hmm. we probably aren't um, really engaging you in a way that's going to lead to high quality results. So those would be my top two books. Awesome, Tom Gardner. Thank you. We'll have to have you back on David, Rule Breaker. And thank Investing. you for opening the uh, uh, opportunity to be here, and I really look forward to that David Allen interview. Well, that was a delight, and I suspect, I'm pretty sure Tom could have had numbers seven, eight, nine, or ten. But since this is one of our longer podcasts. I had to kind of cut us both off there. Looking ahead, let me mention, this month is Entrepreneur Month for Rule Breaker Investing. Next week, I will have another special guest. And I also want to mention that I'll be checking in with one of those lists of five stocks that I do every couple months or so. So, one year ago, I picked five lesser-known Rule Breakers. Five lesser known rule breakers. I will touch base with those five next week. We'll reflect on their performance, what we can learn from them going forward. So, both of those, I hope, delights coming your way next week on Rule Breaker Investing. In the meantime, fool on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.